द लॉ स्कूल ऑफ अमेरिका An action the quiet title is a lawsuit brought in a court having jurisdiction over property disputes in order to establish a party's title to real property or personal property having a title of against anyone and everyone and thus quiet any challenges or claims to the title This legal action is brought to remove a cloud on the title so that the plaintiff and those in privity with him may forever be free of claims against the property The action to quiet title resembles other forms of preventive adjudication such as the declaratory judgment This genre of lawsuit is also sometimes called either a try title, trespass to try title, or ejectment action to recover possession of land wrongfully occupied by a defendant. However, there are slight differences. In an ejectment action, it is typically done to remove a tenant or lessee in an eviction action, or an eviction after a foreclosure. Nonetheless, in some states, all terms are used synonymously. Grounds for a quiet title action or complaint. It comprises a complaint that the ownership, title of a parcel of land or other real property is defective in some fashion, typically where title to the property is ambiguous. For example, where it has been conveyed by a quit claim deed through which the previous owner disclaims all interest but does not promise that good title is conveyed. Such an action may also be brought to dispel a restraint on alienation or another party's claim of a non-possessory interest in land, such as an easement by prescription. Other typical grounds for complaint include adverse possession where the new possessor sues to obtain title in his or her own name, fraudulent conveyance of a property, perhaps by a forged deed or under coercion, torrents title registration, an action which terminates all unrecorded claims, treaty disputes regarding the boundaries between nations, tax taking issues where a municipality claims title in lieu of back taxes owed. or a subsequent purchaser of land at a tax sale files action to gain insurable title boundary disputes between states municipalities or private parties surveying errors and competing claims by reverters remainders missing heirs and lien holders often arising in basic foreclosure actions when satisfied liens are not properly discharged from title due to clerical or recording errors between the county clerk and the satisfied lien holder limitations Unlike acquisition through a deed of sale, a quiet title action will give the party seeking such relief no cause of action against previous owners of the property unless the plaintiff in the quiet title action acquired its interest through a warranty deed and had to bring the action to settle defects that existed when the warranty deed was delivered. Not all quiet title actions clear title completely. Some states have a quiet title action for the purpose of clearing a particular known claim, title defect, or perceived defect. contrast title registration which settles all title issues both known and unknown quiet title actions are always subject to attack and are particularly vulnerable to jurisdictional challenges both subject matter and personal even years after the final court decree in the action it usually takes 3 to 6 months depending on the state where it is done a quiet title action is also subject in many geographic jurisdictions to a statute of limitations This limitations of action is often 10 or 20 years. Equitable conversion is a doctrine of the law of real property under which a purchaser of real property becomes the equitable owner of title to the property at the time he or she signs a contract binding him/her to purchase the land at a later date. The seller retains legal title of the property prior to the date of conveyance, but this land interest is considered personal property, a right to the payment of money rather than a right to the property. The risk of loss is then transferred to the buyer. If a house on the property burns down after the contract has been signed, but before the deed is conveyed, 
the buyer will nevertheless have to pay the agreed-upon purchase price for the land unless the seller in possession or deemed in possession has failed to protect it. Such issues can and should be avoided by parties by stipulating in the contract who will bear the loss in such occurrences. The above rule varies by jurisdiction but is the general rule. Effective death of a party. If one of the parties dies after the contract for sale of the property has been executed, the doctrine will govern how that party's interest will pass to his heirs. For example, the seller wills his real property to his son, and his personal property to his daughter. If the seller dies after a contract for conveyance is signed by a buyer, the seller's interest in the land will be treated as personal property, and the proceeds of the sale will pass to his daughter. In most jurisdictions, the real property interest created by the contract will pass to the buyer's heirs, while the seller's personal property interest created by the contract will pass to the seller's estate. The state of New York does not recognize equitable conversion. In New York, as long as the buyer is without fault, the risk of loss remains on the seller until the buyer takes title or possession. Uniform Vendor and Purchaser Risk Act A growing minority of states have adopted the Uniform Vendor and Purchaser Risk Act, UPRA, in one form or another. The UPRA bases the legal consequences of no-fault casualty loss on the right of possession of the property at the time the loss occurs. See Brush Grocery Card v. Surefine Market, 2002. Generally, the provisions of the UFPR can be modified or avoided in the land sale contract. The Massachusetts Rule In Massachusetts and a handful of other states, the seller continues to bear the risk until the title is actually transferred to the buyer, unless there is an agreement to the contrary. Now a word from our sponsor, the Law School of America. Is cheat is a common law doctrine that transfers the real property of a person who has died without heirs to the crown or state. It serves to ensure the property is not left in limbo without recognized ownership. It originally applied to a number of situations where a legal interest in land was destroyed by operation of law, so that the ownership of the land reverted to the immediately superior feudal lord. Etymology The term as cheat derives ultimately from the Latin ex cadere, to fall out, via medieval French esquivoir. The senses of a feudal estate in land falling out of the possession by a tenant into the possession of the lord. Origins in feudalism In feudal England, escheat referred to the situation where the tenant of a fee, or fief, died without an heir or committed a felony. In the case of such demise of a tenant-in-chief, the fee reverted to the king's domain permanently, when it became once again a mere tenantless plot of land, but could be recreated as a fee by enfoffment to another of the king's followers. Where the deceased had been sub-infeudation by a tenant-in-chief, the fee reverted temporarily to the crown for one year and one day by right of primer size and after which it is cheated to the overlord who had granted it to the deceased by enfoffment. From the time of Henry III, the monarchy took particular interest in escheat as a source of revenue. Background At the Norman conquest of England, all the land of England was claimed as the personal possession of William the Conqueror under a lodial title. The monarch thus became the sole owner of all the land in the kingdom, a position which persists to the present day. He then granted it out to his favored followers, who thereby became tenants-in-chief, under various contracts of feudal land tenure. Such tenures, even the highest one of feudal barony, never conferred ownership of land but merely ownership of rights over it, that is to say ownership of an estate in land. Such persons are therefore correctly termed landholders or tenants, from Latin tineo to hold, not owners. If held freely, that is to say by freehold, such holdings were heritable by the holder's legal heir. On the payment of the premium termed feudal relief to the treasury, such heir was entitled to demand reinfoffment by the king with the fee concerned. 
where no legal heir existed, the logic of the situation was that the fief had ceased to exist as a legal entity, since being tenantless no one was living who had been enfoffed with the land, and the land was thus technically owned by either the crown or the immediate overlord, where the fee had been sub-infudation by the tenant-in-chief to a mesnlord, and perhaps the process of sub-infudation had been continued by a lower series of mesnlords, as Ultimus hears. Logically therefore it was in the occupation of the crown alone, that is to say in the royal domain. This was the basic operation of an escheat, excadir, a failure of heirs. Escheat could also take place if a tenant was outlawed or convicted of a felony, when the king could exercise the ancient right of wasting the criminal's land for a year and a day, after which the land would revert to the overlord. However, one guilty of treason, rather than mere felony, forfeited all lands to the king. John and his heirs frequently insisted on seizing as terrae Norman norum, for example, lands of the Normans, the English lands of those lords with holdings in Normandy who preferred to be Normans rather than Englishmen, when the victories of Philip II of France forced them to make a proclamation of allegiance to France, since disavowal of a feudal bond was a felony, lords could as cheat land from those who refused to perform their feudal services. On the other hand, there were also tenants who were merely sluggish in performing their duties, while not being outright rebellious against the lord. Remedies in the courts against this sort of thing, even in Brockton's day, were available, but were considered laborious and were frequently ineffectual in compelling the desired performance. The commonest mechanism was distraint, also known as distress, districtio, whereby the lord would seize chattels or goods belonging to the tenant, to hold until performance was achieved. This practice had been addressed in the 1267 Statute of Marlborough. Even so, it remained the most common extrajudicial method applied by overlords at the time of quia emptors. Thus, under English common law, there were two main ways an escheat could happen. 1. A person's lands are escheated to the immediate overlord if he was convicted of a felony, but not treason, in that event the land was forfeited to the crown. If the person was executed for felony, his heirs were attainted, i.e. were ineligible to inherit. In most common law jurisdictions, this type of escheat has been abolished outright, for example in the United States under Article 3 Section 3 of the United States Constitution, which states that attainders for treason do not give rise to posthumous forfeiture, or corruption of blood. 2. If a person had no heir to receive his lands under his will, or under the laws of intestacy, then any land he owned at death would escheat. This rule has been replaced in most common law jurisdictions by bona vacantia or a similar concept. Procedure From the 12th century onward, the Crown appointed as cheaters to manage as cheats and report to the exchequer, with one as cheater per county established by the middle of the 14th century. Upon the death of a tenant in chief, the as cheater would be instructed by a writ of DM closet extremum, he has closed his last day, for example, he is dead, issued by the King's Chancery to impanel a jury to hold an inquisition post-mortem to ascertain who the legal heir was, if any, and what was the extent of the land held. Thus, it would be revealed whether the king had any rights to the land. It was also important for the king to know who the heir was, and to assess his personal qualities, since he would thenceforth form a constituent part of the royal army, if he held under military tenure. If there was any doubt, the escheater would seize the land and refer the case to the king's court where it would be settled ensuring that not one day's revenue would be lost. This would be a source of concern with landholders when there were delays from the court. Current Operation Most common law jurisdictions have abolished the concept of feudal land tenure of property, and so the concept of his cheat has lost something of its meaning. In England and Wales, 
The possibility of a cheat of a deceased person's property to the feudal overlord was abolished by the Administration of Estates Act 1925, however, the concept of bona vacantia means that the Crown, or Duchy of Cornwall or Duchy of Lancaster, can still receive such property if no one else can be found who is eligible to inherit it. The term is often now applied to the transfer of the title to a person's property to the state when the person dies intestate without any other person capable of taking the property as heir. For example, a common law jurisdiction's intestacy statute might provide that when someone dies without a will, and is not survived by a spouse, descendants, parents, grandparents, descendants of parents, children or grandchildren of grandparents, or great-grandchildren of grandparents, then the person's estate will escheat to the state. In some jurisdictions, escheat can also occur when an entity, typically a bank, credit union or other financial institution, holds money or property which appears to be unclaimed, for instance due to a lack of activity on the account by way of deposits, withdrawals or any other transactions for a lengthy time in a cash account. In many jurisdictions, if the owner cannot be located, such property can be irrevocably escheated to the state. In commerce, it is the process of reassigning legal title in unclaimed or abandoned payroll checks, insurance payouts, or stocks and shares whose owners cannot be traced, to a state authority, in the United States. A company is required to file unclaimed property reports with its state annually and, in some jurisdictions, to make a good faith effort to find the owners of their dormant accounts. The cheating criteria are set by individual state regulations. United States Transfer Agents and Escheatment Escheatment is the process of returning lost or unclaimed property to the government of a state, for safekeeping until the owners is identified. Geographic jurisdiction of the state is determined by the last known address of the original owner. Each of the United States has laws regulating escheatment, withholding periods typically ranging around five years. The legal principle behind escheatment is that all property has a legally recognized owner, therefore, if the original owner cannot be found within the specified time, the government is presumed to be the owner. Escheats are performed on a revocable basis. Thus, if property has escheated to a state but the original owner subsequently is found, escheatment is revoked and ownership of the property reverts to that original owner. Lost Shareholders According to SEC Rule 17 CFR 240.17 F1, transfer agents are obligated by the SEC to report to the Commission, specifically to its designee, the SEC Securities Information System, any time a certificate is known to be lost or missing for at least two days. Transfer agents must search for the holder's SSN or INE utilizing an information database system, or if not available, exercise their best effort to match the holder's name and address through these systems. All transfer agents must report all lost or missing certificates slash shareholders on their own annual filings. England and Wales Bankruptcies and Liquidations Escheat can still occur in England and Wales, if a person is made bankrupt or a corporation is liquidated. Usually this means that all the property held by that person is vested in, transferred to, the official receiver or trustee in bankruptcy. However, it is open to the receiver or trustee to refuse to accept that property by disclaiming it. It is relatively common for a trustee in bankruptcy to disclaim freehold property which may give rise to a liability, for example the common parts of a block of flats owned by the bankrupt would ordinarily pass to the trustee to be realized in order to pay his debts, but the property may give the landlord an obligation to spend money for the benefit of lessees of the flats. The bankruptcy of the original owner means that the freehold is no longer the bankrupt's legal property, and the disclaimer destroys the freehold estate.
so that the land ceases to be owned by anyone and effectively is cheats to become land held by the crown in domain. This situation affects a few hundred properties each year. Although such as cheated property is owned by the crown, it is not part of the crown estate, unless the crown, through the crown estate commissioners, completes the is cheat, by taking steps to exert rights as owner. However, usually, in the example given above, the tenants of the flats, or their mortgagees would exercise their rights given by the Insolvency Act 1986 to have the freehold property transferred to them. This is the main difference between this cheat and bona vacantia, as in the latter, a grant takes place automatically, with no need to complete the transaction. Registration of Crown Land One consequence of the Land Registration Act 1925 was that only estates in land, freehold or leasehold, could be registered. Land held directly by the Crown, known as property in the royal domain, is not held under any vestigial feudal tenure, the Crown has no historical overlord other than, for brief periods, the papacy, and there is therefore no estate to register. This had the consequence that freeholds which is cheated to the Crown cease to be registrable. This created a slow drain of property out of registration, amounting to some hundreds of freehold titles in each year. The problem was noted by the Law Commission in their report Land Registration for the 21st Century. The Land Registration Act 2002 was passed in response to that report. It provides that land held in domain by the Crown may be registered. The Law School of America This has been a Creative Commons licensed podcast. The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation Incorporated under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America. (laughs) 